Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to come together and study, to grow in a knowledge of who you are and what you'd have us do. Father, as we look into this topic of cover crops and smother crops and exactly what the purpose is for them, I pray that your spirit would guide us and lead us and teach us that we would understand a little closer your idea of agriculture, that we would implement it according to your will and purposes, and that ultimately it would bring glory and honor to you. We thank you that you've promised to teach us, that we can rest in the idea that as we put our feet forward, you will guide. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. All right. See that booklet? All right. So the title of this lecture is Cover Crops, Smother Crops, and Green Manures. My name is Larry Lesher, and I will be the one engaged in this dialogue today with you folks. So gather in as close as you can. I thought it might be useful to start. Oftentimes we have this idea of what these words mean but we don't necessarily understand exactly what they mean. Because a lot of times we use them synonymously, and they can be used that way. But they're not always quite so vague. There, there can be some particulars to them and why they're called what they're called at a given time for a particular application. So I thought it might be a, a suitable endeavor to go through the terminology a little bit, and I think it helps us to define and, and give us some structure of what we're talking about. Does that make sense? Okay. Sure. You know, it's not a, people don't talk about this much. How many people here are practicing any type of cover cropping? Two people? Three people? Right. How many people here are actively doing any kind of agriculture? So these are actually several, these are pretty long definitions. And if, if it gets a little too tedious for you guys, I'm kind of information, I, I like information. So it <laughs> helps me make decisions. And so if it's too much though, just let me know, okay? So cover crops, cover crops are those crops that are planted to provide a cover for the soil. They are grown primarily as a biological soil conservation tool to prevent soil erosion by water and or wind and to foster multiple benefits in a farming system. Catch all that? These benefits include but are not limited to optimization and or normalization of the, of the fertility profile Improvement of the soil properties such as water holding capacity, structure, and aggregation. Resource lost fertility, I'm sorry, rescue lost fertility that is leached away or is, could leach away. So before it leaches away, we can hold on to it. Provide deep root channels for the next crop and increase organic matter. Cover crops are typically planted before and after the main designated cash crop in a rotation. Cover crops may be used as a ground cover or mulch, green manure, nurse crop, or smother crop. 
The cover crops can be annual, biannual, biannual, or perennial species, including legumes, grasses, and the brassicas. Okay. Basically, as I understand this, cover crops make up the overarching theme of what a smother crop is, a catch crop, a scavenger crop, any of these different titles that we're going to look at, the cover, they, they are cover crops in some form or fashion. Does that make sense? Everyone following me? Can you explain a catch crop? Well, I'm gonna, these are all things that are going to get defined. We're going through the definitions right now. And so as we go through the definitions, they'll, we're going to kind of, that's the baseline. Understand what we're talking about when we say what we, we say. Because people will say, like the title infers, that there's this different thing. But really, they're all cover crops, and they're all just performing a function. And so like a green manure is a cover crop that you till in while it's still green, right? But it's still a cover crop, right? Still covering. Right. And so something could be like a scavenger crop, like you asked. It's still a cover crop. It's just performing a specific task. You're putting a specific cover crop in to perform a specific task. And so we're going to say that specific task is scavenging for, say, a taprooting cover crop that it's going to go deep and scavenge things that are in lower in the profile of the soil to bring them up. Everyone follow? All right. So cover crop is kind of an overarching term. So now we're going to get into some of the specific types of, of cover cropping. The first one would be green manure. Any crop that is grown and incorporated into the soil while it is green or soon after flowering, which can improve the soil, especially with the addition of organic matter plus N, P, and K. Does everybody know what N, P, and K are? Yeah. All right. And other elements contained in the plant. The average availability of nitrogen and green manure material turned under is typically about 50 to 60% of the initial amount and is determined by a feed or tissue test. Probably not going to do that, just unless you're doing something very specific and you want to know exactly how much nitrogen you took in on a specific crop, you aren't going to do probably a tissue analysis when you turn it in as a small farm or a garden is not typically going to happen. Um, but what it's saying is, is that when you get the report back of how much, how much, however much nitrogen you tilled in as a green manure, it isn't av immediately available, all of that. It's going to come over the course of time as the breakdown of that plant occurs. But because you tilled it in green, it's going to break down rather fast in initially. Follow? Understand what I'm saying? Okay. So... Green manure was once the conventional method of supplying nitrogen and other fertility to crops and was practiced widely before commercial nitrogen fertilizers became available. That's significant to me. So what does that say to you? That it worked. And so do we need nitrogen-based fertilizers outsourced in our system? No. Not at all. And why don't we? It's available right here in the air. We're breathing it, right? And all we need to do is figure out how to get it from this gaseous form in the air to some sort of organic form in the ground, right? Some sort of 
solid form that can break down in a gaseous form in the soil where it's available to the root system of the plant. Yeah? Everyone understand that principle, why, why that works so well and why it's a very functional? Here's something. Plants prefer elements that were once in a plant. Does that make sense? Do you know what I'm saying? You can put an element in the ground as a rock, right? You can put it in as some synthesized form into the ground, but it prefers above all of that an element that was once in a plant. So if you can get a plant, a cover crop, to take up a nutrient or pull a nutrient from the air into its own tissues and till that into the ground, the plant that you plant afterwards is going to prefer that as opposed to the rest. So that's kind of brilliant in my mind, in my way of thinking. Because one of the problems we run into, I bought a ton of potassium for my farm this year. It cost me $1,200. That's not cheap for some potassium. Potassium, is just, if, if it doesn't get taken onto a colloid, which is, everyone here know what a colloid is? So in the ground, you have, you have a place for the minerals to stick. They're negatively and positively charged, and so there's a, a drawing magnetic force that, that they stay on to the, the soil particle. That's colloid. And so if you don't have anywhere for that potassium, let's say, to go, where's it going to go? It's going to keep moving through the soil profile if it's... Different ones move at different rates, but they're going to move through the, the soil profile and out of your root zone, and you're going to lose that investment that you put in the ground. And so one of the ways that we can maintain that investment is cover crops will take them up before they leach out, and then we can save them, right? Does that make sense? And so now they're bound up, they're tied up in the plant, and now we're saving that from being lost. I probably can't tell you the exact science, but what I can tell you is, is there's a a there's different ways that minerals go into a plant, right? And the primary way that a mineral goes into a plant is that it's got a symbiotic relationship with the biology in the soil, and the biology in the soil is going to break down that that metal or that rock and convert it to a bioavailable form for that plant. And the plant's going to exchange some sort of exudate to that little creature in exchange for it. Now, I'm, that's a pretty rudimentary way to say it, but that's effectively what happens. The, the exchange isn't full and complete. Part of what the, the breakdown of that mineral was stays in that microorganism's body, right? And so it's stored there. Just like the plant is going to exude things to make that exchange, it also exudes acids to break down things that are in the soil. And because the, the type of, of mineral, like in the, the form that the mineral's in when it's in the cover crop is more, it's easier for the plant. It functions better in the plant. And so when I say it likes it better, it means that it's going to be, the plant doesn't have to do as much work to utilize it. And so it has a preference 
right? It's the path of least resistance, you might call it. And so it's obviously much more complicated than that chemistry and, and so on and so forth, but that's a, a basic way to, to explain why it happens that way. Um, and so uh, we just went through green manure. All right. Any questions about what I said so far? Kind of a little bit going off of my what I said I was going to do, but but that's the way I am. So you guys aren't very talkative. Well, what kind of potassium did you use? I was using potassium sulfate, organically approved um, substance, and so sulfur obviously moves. It's a sulfate form, and so it will dissolve in water and it will move pretty readily. Yeah, it's water soluble. And so, you know, like if you were to use uh, phosphorus, for instance, right? Phosphorus isn't really going to move. The only way phosphorus moves is if, uh, if the microbes and the, and the worms pull it down. Otherwise, it's, a, it's an anion. It's not a cation. So it's a negatively charged mineral. And it's a triple charge. So is, is, is everyone familiar with what I'm saying when I say charged? Like an atom has a certain amount of charge that's going around it. So it's a triple bond, which means it's a very strongly bonded material. And so it doesn't really, it's not very mobile. It doesn't move very much. And so things that are single bonded, you know, they just, they're just weaker elements that, that move around easier if they're water soluble. The form they're in can dictate that as well. And so... Um, Anyway, so I was using a, a sulfur, and I'd use a sulfur form because we want it to be available more readily. And there's pluses and minuses to that, obviously. The next definition we're going to look at is a catch crop. And so we kind of have somewhat talked about this already in, in our discussion. When cover crops are planted to reduce nutrient leaching, they are termed catch crops. These are cover crops planted after the cash crop is harvested or after lagoon plow down. They are also planted in late summer or early fall to trap nutrients from freshly spread manures. They are, they are uh, grown to take up and hold the nutrients in their tissues or catch the nutrients from the soil, especially, especially nitrogen that may otherwise be leached lower in the soil profile and lost below the active crop root zone. And so um, you may grow a cover crop of, of a legume. Okay, a legume will affix nitrogen out of the air. And you may till that into the soil, but you may not be, you may be going into winter, let's say, and you're not going to plant a cash crop. You're not going to plant a crop that you're going to utilize to sell or for yourself to eat. But you don't want all that nitrogen just sitting there in, in the, and bare dirt where the rain's going to come through and leach it out. So what you can do is you can plant a, a winter cover crop to catch the release of that material. It's either going to off-gas into the air, it's going to leach down into the subsoil, and then off your farm or out of your garden. And so you would put something down that would grab a hold of that material, take it into itself, store it in its plant tissue, and then in the spring when you till it in, it would be available now for your crop. Make sense? Of cash crops? Cash crops. crops. Pretty much anything would be considered a cash crop that's going to take up those nutrients. Yeah. 
Well, pretty much. Yeah, and I mean, you would you would choose it based on whatever you wanted to catch. Sure, a hard red winter wheat would be great if you're wintering over because it's not going to winter kill. Yeah, time of year. And so hard red winter wheat, clover would be a good one. Red winter wheat's really a nice cover crop because it actually can take up most minerals. Not all plants take up all the spectrum in, in winter wheat. Hard red winter wheat will. And so it's a nice cover crop to use. But it isn't going to fix nitrogen like a legume cover crop would. So legumes, everyone knows what a legume is. Um, peas, family type of stuff, um, clovers. Yes, ma'am. Um, it would depend on the crop. So if let's say you did oats, right? And oats are going to winter kill, and so you would that could be beneficial too, depending on what you're doing is how you would choose which cover crop or which catch crop or what you would be doing. So cover crops, um, if you weren't here at the very beginning. Cover crops is a general term for pretty much all of these, and then we're getting to specific terms that you would use a cover crop for. So, like we talked about uh, catch crops, we talked about green manures so far. Okay, and so there's there's quite a few. There's scavenger crops, and so a scavenger crop. Well, we'll we'll read it and then we'll talk about that. Framed soil. Frame soils that have been heavily cropped with shallow-rooted plants such as corn may become deficient in certain micronutrients. Deep-rooted scavenger cover crops such as certain annual ryegrasses, alfalfa, red clover, sweet clover, grow roots deep into the soil, subsoil and have the ability to bring soil nutrients from the lower soil profile to the upper layers and also into the scavenger crop's leaf biomass, securing it there for the next crop. The deep-growing root structure additionally helps to break up soil compaction when these plants die. Their decaying roots leave not only organic matter but also channels in the soil that provide pathways for the roots of the following crop to follow down the profile. These root channels also provide pathways for water to drain um, from the surface. So you can see it's performing a specific thing as catching things that are lower down in the profile that maybe you need to be bringing up into the upper ranges of, the, of your soil profile, but they're performing much more than that. Obviously, they're creating water channels so that you have water flow and movement in your water, in, in your water, in your soil profile. Yes, sir. You can use pretty much any any fibrous material. So, pretty much any plant would work as a cover crop, depending on what you want to do. And so, we're going over the definitions of everything. Well, you, you could use like a Sudan grass, but there's certain grasses like you wouldn't want to plant an invasive grass. You would want to pick your type of grass specifically for a purpose. And so we're going to go over, these are the names of all the different types of things you use cover crops for. Then we're going to go into more specifics about why you would choose what for what, more so. Yeah, so some of the grasses become quite problematic. And so like most grasses, you may not, most people probably don't know this, but they're they're very shallow rooted and they are in the very, very top few inches of the, of the soil profile. And the reason for that is because they're trying to hold the soil together. So you don't get erosion, you don't have problems such as, you know, water runoff. They're, they're there to soak up water and, and sort of help, you, help the soil rebuild. And so once you get beyond this, this mineral deficiency that is there, you start to develop different 
characteristics of the soil. And when the characteristics of the soil change, the plants that it hosts most readily changes. Does that make sense? Okay. And so we have um, what are called break crops. Cash crops attack, attract and harbor particular populations of insect pests, including harmful nematodes. Different species of cover crops can be selected in the rotation that do not harbor these pests or actually diminish their population by interrupting the insect's life cycle. Break crop, B-R-E-A-K, break crop. And so what you're doing is you're breaking cycles. So if you grow corn and soybean all the time, right? wouldn't recommend that, but if that's what you have had, or you come into a, say you buy a place, it's been in, in uh, a particular, you know, monocropping situation for a long time, and you're trying to rebuild that soil and get that soil back into health, one of the things you would utilize, would be smart to utilize, is, is cover crops and break crops, or cover crop specifically with this in mind, to break certain life cycles. Um, we'll get into some other ones that we would use, but one of them would be something that is going to be taprooted and mined deep into the soil to break up whatever plow pan or hard pan has been developed through that type of agricultural use. Because you're, you're going to use these, this is a remedial purposes as well as maintenance. So remediation, um, sorry, not remedial, remediation. Um, and so what you want to do is, is look at the situation you find yourself in on a particular piece of ground and say, what am I trying to accomplish? What am I wanting to do? Where am I at? Where do I want to go? And we have to be able to reason a little bit from cause to effect. This is what happened before. You know, you might come to a place that's just been grass for years and years and years and no one's done anything with it. You know, if you move into a house in a backyard situation, it's just been a lawn forever. Or you may come to a place that's been hayed. My, that farm that I came to had been hayed for 30 years. There's nothing there. I mean, when I did a soil analysis, the phosphorus level was one. You know, potassium was 17. That may not mean anything to you, but these numbers are basically non-existent. There's nothing there. I mean, it's, it's, it can't grow food effectively. And so you're going to have to do something to cause that ground to repair itself. And it's not going to do it by itself. Not anytime soon, anyway. I mean, you know, if there's no phosphorus there, it's not going to make it be there unless you, you know, put it there. And the potassium's so low, you know, you need to put potassium down, but if, if you're not managing that potassium once you put it down and you're not getting it to stick, to stay there, and it's just running through in the water profile and running off your farm, then you, you're just going to find yourself in a very poor situation, struggling to, to get food for your family or to take to market. And so these are tools to help you manage your investment better. Does that make sense? And so as we look through these, and I mean, when I start naming them, they make sense, right? I mean, when I, when I start just saying the name, you're like, scavenger crop. Well, everyone knows what scavenging is, and so you can kind of start to deduce I never really thought about that because we don't think about these things typically, right? We think of cover crops generally as green manure, right? Everyone probably recognizes that term. Oh, okay, it's like instead of putting animal manure down, we're using plant material as some sort of source of fertility, right? Green manures. 
the other term people think of is, or not term, but the other reason why we would do a cover crop is because, you know, if you leave bare dirt, what happens when it rains? It washes away, and you need some roots there to hold it in place. And so that's, you know, the things, the two things most people think about when they think of cover crops, right? Is that was that what your thinking was? I mean, you tell me. Yeah. Okay. So, I'm just giving you some new terminology here so that you can think a little bit outside of that box. So, so we have nurse crop next. A nurse crop is one that germinates and emerges quickly, holds the soil with quick cover and root structure, and assists the development of the slower maturing crop. Oats, Italian ryegrass, and fescue are common nurse crops used to start an alfalfa tall fescue hay crop. The oats or nurse crop grasses germinate first, outcompete weeds for available resources, then can be mowed when the legume or slower emerging grass starts to grow. Um, oats, ryegrass, and fescue. Festulum. I'm sorry, not fescue. Festulum. Yeah, so let's say you were going to put something down that's, that germinates slowly, comes out small, doesn't really move for a long time. You can't necessarily have your ground bare dirt that long, right? And so you're going to put something with it that's going to germinate quickly and lock up that ground so you don't lose your topsoil. You know, you're not losing your, your soil. And it's going to shade out competing weeds. And then once your crop that you're actually trying to grow, your alfalfa or whatever you're wanting to actually grow there, as, a, as in this instance, they were using a, the comparison for like hay or straw. And you would then cut the first crop so that now it has light and it's not shaded out. And they can actually take off once it's a little bigger. Does that make sense? Yeah, so like a rye or, or oats, something that, that would facilitate that. Now, it didn't talk about this in this definition, but you would sometimes want to put like an oats and pea mixed down, right? And the reason for that is the peas will trellis on the oats, so it keeps them off the ground, right? So that's another tool you can use. Um, Smother crops is the next one. Now, a smother crop is a fast-growing crop. Fast-growing crops um, help control weeds by growing a thick canopy that reduces the amount of sunlight for weed seeds to germinate and grow. Smother crops grow tall at a fast rate or quickly produce broad leaves that shade out lower-growing weeds, including these cover. And Including these covers in your rotation, growing double or triple crops in a single season is an effective strategy for weed control. An effective sequence of smother crops is oats in spring, buckwheat and or sorghum sedan grass in summer, and rye, triticale, or forage brassicas in the fall. Hairy vetch planted in the fall and overwintering will then act as a spring smother crop, smothering early spring weeds. These crops can also produce high-quality forage. Yeah, I'm just reading through it really quickly so we get the definition and then we can talk about them. Well, it, so all of those you would use at specific times of year in a cycle, okay? And 
and yeah, and there would be um, yeah, oats in spring, buckwheat, or sorghum sedan grass in the summer. That's buckwheat and sorghum sedan grass in summer. Ready? Rye, rye, triticale, or forage brassicas in the fall. Um, T R I T I C A L E. Planted in the fall. And that's for for wintering over. Well, it's probably going to be, depending on what you plant, would, would have something to do with that as well and why you're planting it. So if you're wanting to do something that will, so you don't want, like so say you're doing a hard red winter wheat for a winter crop, right? If it gets too big, it gets damaged by the cold. So you have to time it somewhat right. If you do it too early or too late, then the seeds don't germinate, and it, it, you could, they could rot, or you could have issues with them in the spring. Most of the time they won't, and it'll come up in the spring anyway. But you, you really want to time it so that the grass is at, at a, you know, two or three inches tall when the frost comes. Yeah, probably about a month, yeah. It's fair. But it's hard to say. I mean, you have to take the year into consideration, and you would look at your calendars, and, and you would start to make some decisions based on how the, this season's going. But I mean, it's, it's, I'll tell you, it's pretty forgiving. You know, I mean, it, there, there's windows to hit, but they're pretty forgiving windows all in all. So it's my practice is a fast run ground that goes tall at a fast rate to cover bare ground. Yeah. germinating seed. Yeah, so you're, you're smothering out the light, you're smothering out the idea that, that any other seed is going to germinate, but you're also creating a, a large amount of biomass when you do that generally as well. And so, you know, the more biomass you generate in a cover crop, the more material you're putting into the ground when you till it into the ground. And so, how late does this class go? So five, what time did we start? Five. All right, so we have a half hour. All right. Um, so, what did we I lost my train of thought there. Oh, smother crops, yes, yes. And so a really good smother crop is hairy vetch. Hairy vetch is, um, produces, some people have a hard time tilling it down with a, with a bush hog. Yeah, it, it's, just, it's just very, very fibrous and it makes a lot of green material. You, they will become, they also, you have to be careful that you don't let these things go to seed necessarily unless you're doing it for a specific reason because they can become pretty invasive as well. Yes, and so you have to, you want to till these things in, you know, depending on the circumstances, you want to make sure you're tilling them in at the right time or mowing them down at the right time to make sure you're not ending up with a, a weed problem from your cover crop because they can, they can do that as well. 
So the last thing you, you might choose to do with a cover crop is what's called allelo. I have a hard time pronouncing this. Allelopathy. Allelopathy. No. Allelopathy. I'll, I'll give you the definition. A-L-L-E-L-O-P-A-T-H-Y. Allelopathy. The term allelopathy is often used when referring to the weed suppressing attributes of certain cover crops. Allelopathy is the inhibit, in, the inhib, <laughs> inhibition of growth in one species of plants by chemicals produced by another species. It can be any direct or indirect harmful effect produced in one plant through toxic chemicals released into the environment by another. The magnitude of the determinal effect on the extent of any other stresses, such as environmental conditions or biological factors, um, such as insect and disease pressure, that occur at the same time. Different crop, cover crops have different allelopathic effects and the activity may be reduced or enhanced by microbial action, oxidation, and other transformations in the soil. So basically what that's saying, so that you understand what I'm telling you, is that you can say plant, what do we use to plant? We used to plant um, um, ryegrass. We would plant an annual rye, and in the spring, we knew that when we tilled that in, it would inhibit seed germination. And so if you were going to, let's say we were going to do salad mix, salad mix you direct seed. You couldn't follow tilling in your ryegrass with salad mix. You would have germination issues because it released a chemical that would prevent seeds from germinating. And, and now almost all plants do this because they are basically protecting their environment. And on different levels, they function different ways. And so when they germinate, they'll do it too. And they're saying, this is my space, stay out, type of a thing. And so, but you can utilize it to your advantage because I can take that same process and say in the spring, I know that I'm gonna have transplants like kale and broccoli and the brassica family stuff that can handle still some frost and, and some cold conditions and I can transplant them into those beds that I just tilled that into, and there's no competing weed seeds, or it mitigates the competing weed seed germination, and so I'm gonna have a cleaner bed, and it's gonna be wet, because it's spring, and the beds are always wet, and you can never get in there and hoe or cultivate, and so now you're using it to your advantage in the spring to mitigate the weed pressure, but you're getting in an early crop. How long will that minimization last? Different crops, different different times. I know they say don't plant in two for 30 days after you till in ryegrass as well, you know, and that, that's a generality. Like it said, there are different factors that are going to turn, that are going to come into play with that as well. Um, environmental factors will affect that, that effect as well. Oh, 30 days is what we always would wait if we were going to do direct seeding until them, yeah. So that way, I know I have to plan a little bit ahead of time if I have a ryegrass cover crop going into the spring. I know I'm going to plant salad mix fairly early as well, so that means I need to prep some of those beds much earlier to be prepared for that, or I need to have some space open and available that isn't going to have that, 
that issue. And so we're, we're managing our ground, right? It's a, it's a management technique, how you're going to manage to do these things effectively without using a bunch of chemicals, let's say, a bunch of um, synthetic fertilizers. These are just useful tools, you know, and you may utilize some, you may never use, utilize others. Um, just depends on how technical you want to be with your garden. Sometimes the weather will dictate what you're going to do. <laughs> you may have all, I have seeds sitting in my garage that I planned on putting in, and I'm here. <laughs> so it didn't work out for me this, this fall yet. You know, depending on how the weather goes, I may get them in still. So absolutely. It, the break crop, you would break um, some of the disease cycles you can, depending on what you would choose to plant in there. So if you've been doing tomatoes and tomatoes and tomatoes and tomatoes, you may plant something in there that could help cleanse that ground a little bit that might mine a little deeper than the tomato plant and pull up some um, things that you've lost down deeper. So there's different things you could choose to do that. You may want to add some nitrogen in there. So you could do clover or something like that. You could undersow your crop that's in there, like it, let's say it's tomatoes, you could undersow a clover crop in there, and I mean, you know, it looks, yeah, while they're still there, undersow it, yeah, and uh, then when you pull them out, you'd have a nice crop, of a cover crop to go into the fall with, you know, and they're fixing nitrogen, so the, the when we were at the Black Hills, you know, we had the grapes, and I sowed the, in the walk paths, I was sowing um, clover, with the idea that when those grapes reach their roots out into the walk path, they're going to have that nitrogen source there that the clover's pulling into the ground. And there should be some ability to, you know, utilize that nitrogen for them. And so, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things. I mean, it's not limited to what's been done. It's limited to what you choose to do. You know, you're managing it, and you can try and experiment with these things. And, you know, they, they are, this is part of the beauty of, of what God has given us in the garden. Right? It's an art project, in part. And it's our art project that we get to work with God and learn these sort of, you know, principles that He's opening up to us individually. You know, and so we get to play with these ideas on a, you know, whatever scale you want to, generally a smaller scale to, to see how it works. And if it works, then you're, and you're in good shape, right? I mean, you, you just found a, a new technique to accomplish something like nitrogen fixation. Well, he's using it. It sounds like he was harvesting wheat, so it wouldn't be a cover crop. I mean, he could be utilizing components of that, but he's also losing nutrients in that process as well. So, I mean, there's, you know what I mean? So you, you take all of these factors into consideration, and, you know, there's benefits and there's losses just like any any business proposition, you know, you kind of weigh your cost-benefit analysis and your what you get and what you lose and say, is it worth it? And to him, it was worth it, you know. He can come back and remineralize or whatever he wants to do, you know, and he may get some shading on his, you know, you're losing. So with grapes, for instance, I would assume, I mean, uh, the new wheats are fairly small, and so it may not be real tall, but you're losing some of the wind flow, which would help with um, disease and, and fungal disease in the, in the grapes and things like that. So, you know, you kind of say, is it worth it? And, and you make those choices. Any other questions? All right, well, let's... There's basically... Well, I'll skip that. 
primarily when we talk about cover crops, there's two real categories, the non-legumous family and the legumous family. Those that affix nitrogen and those that don't affix nitrogen, basically. I mean, if, if you were an honest person, and I hope we all are, most people are using cover crops to get nitrogen. That is probably the number one, and I say most people, because there are some people that really utilize cover crops effectively for a multitude of reasons, but most people are trying to affix nitrogen, and it is a wonderful way to get nitrogen into the soil in a, in a really healthy way, I would say, in a way that you're not going to cause contamination and nitrogen leaching off and stuff like that. So for the Sabbath rest of the land rest, I think, you know, and, and this would be a personal study that you might look into. You can look into Leviticus 25. And in Leviticus 25, it talks about the land rest cycles. But I think it would be an acceptable thing to put a cover crop down the, the year going into your, your um, land rest, an appropriate cover crop, something like a, you may put down some um, clover seed that could go for several years even, and it would help to be a revitalizing force during that rest, tilt it in, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, you, you are allowing the land to have its rest, but you're also being moderately active about not just haphazardly letting anything happen there. You know, you're just sort of saying, because the land rest isn't just about the land, you understand. It's not just about letting the land rest, it's about you taking a rest as well. No, you didn't get a rest, but, but the land rest intention was is that you had time to come meet with God and rest in Christ. So, but yeah, so that's, you know, in the land rest situation there, you can utilize cover crops. I don't think that that would be considered causing the land to work. Something's going to grow there. Nor causing you to work. Right. And so, you know, I mean, each person would have to determine that in their own, you know, that would be a personal study. And I would say you go to God and you make that choice between you and God. Yeah, it's a sabbatical. It's a rest. Yeah, so, but, you know, I, I, a cover crop, I think, could be useful in that, that scenario. I mean, in my farm, I have tons of clover. I didn't plant it. It was a hay field before, and... There's just a lot of clover that comes up, and I rest my land every other year. I have six acres. I farm three at a time. So I farm these three, and then these three, and then these three, and then these three. And so there's something resting every other year, half my farm is. And so there's just a naturally occurring clover cycle that happens for the moment. Eventually, you know, we'll, it'll get worked out of the ground. But right now, we have clover that comes up by itself, and that's, to me, um, it's, that's just a great cover crop for me. Annual clover? It's a red, it's a crimson clover. Yeah. And we do have some of the little white clover in there as well, but the, the red clover is the one I was talking about. Yeah, and Dutch clover, yeah, yeah. So, there's another component to this that's very interesting to me. Did anybody here attend any of the soil fertility classes with Whitmar? Were you there when he talked about cobalt and and molybdenum. If you don't have proper levels of cobalt and moly, your nitrogen fixation will be way low, you, maybe even none. You have to have them in the soil in order for to have proper nitrogen fixation. And so 
that is something that you should make sure you have in, in proper quantities in the soil if you're going to take the time and finance to, to try and get a nitrogen in your soil from nodule fixation and just actually even into plant tissue. They're a, they're a key component to that happening. And so that's, pardon? Cobalt and, well, people call it molybdenum and they call it molybdenum. There's all kinds of pronunciations for it. But yeah, those two. And I mean, to give you an idea, it's they're very small amounts. I had to put down cobalt on my farm and we put down one pound an acre. So I mean, it's pretty nominal. It was about $30 a pound. So it's not cheap when you look at it in terms of price per pound, but you don't really need any. So it's it's not something I would skimp on. It's I actually did it in a backpack sprayer. I, I put it in liquid and liquefied it and sprayed it on. That's how I did it. And I'll tell you, if you ever tried to put a pound of powder on an acre of ground, it, it doesn't really work so well. So, um, and, and just so you know, I mean, since we're talking about it, the way that I did it was I took my backpack sprayer. It's a four-gallon backpack sprayer. Filled it up with water. Walked out in my field walked the field and sprayed until it was empty. And I said, okay, I did my, my beds are 100 feet long by five feet wide. And so I walked back and forth and did five foot strips. And when I ran out, I said, I can do this many beds before I run out. And I go, I need a pound. So I divide it all out and go, okay, I need to put this much in each backpack. And when I get to the end of that, I go back, fill it up again, start there again and go. And by the end of the acre, I've used my pound and got it all on the field pretty evenly. So that's how you would accomplish something like that. All right. So, so those are required. Um, we talked about this a little bit. I just want to say this again. In choosing a cover crop for soil improvement, first identify the purpose or the primary function of the cover crop based on the needs of your system. If somebody tells you this is what you should do because it's what I did, That's like telling you, because I broke my arm, you need a cast too. It's ridiculous, right? I mean, that makes no sense whatsoever. My ground isn't your ground. My situation isn't your situation. And so you need to look at your individual situation and say, what do I need to accomplish? And so why am I going to choose to do what I'm going to choose to do? And yeah, you need to maybe base that on some intelligent thought about why, where you want to go, and what that's going to do for you. But don't just do something because the guy down the street did it. That's something that we, we tend to fall prey to in gardening. Is uh, If it worked for him, then it's going to work for me. And that is not the case. I mean, it could, but it's not necessarily the case. So that's the first one of the first things we just want to be very clear about. So providing nitrogen. The main benefit in using a legume as a green manure is that Legumes fix nitrogen from the atmosphere and convert it into a form that is available to other plants. Legumes grow in a symbiotic relationship with soil-dwelling bacteria, rhizobia. And so that's how it happens. It won't do it by itself. And so not only do you need the cobalt and the moly, but you actually have to make sure you have the right rhizobia population in the ground as well. And so you can inoculate the seeds. Right? You guys put down peas this year. Right, Richard? And you did, I believe, a, an appropriate rhizobia inoculant on those. 
right? So what you do is before you put the seeds out, you, you took the powder, it's like a black powder, right? And you stir it into the seeds. Yeah, and then when you put your seeds out, you know that they're, that, that, right, that. So yeah, there you go. Did you do a cobalt and molly test when you guys sent yours in? Yeah, I'd be curious when you send yours in if you have them. They're in the Black Hills. That's some minerally rich soil up there. A lot of rocks, but it's minerally rich. Well, it, the, it wasn't mine. <laughs> some, very, some of them bigger than this room, I think. <laughs> but, um, but so yeah, so that's one of the things you want to take into consideration when you are getting seeds. They, almost everywhere you get a cover crop seed, they will offer either pre-inoculated on some places or you can buy a bag of inoculant and you would just inoculate your peas or your, you know, whatever Doesn't you're doing. I, I generally buy the bag of, of inoculant and put it on myself. I have bought it pre-inoculated. And the problem with the pre-inoculated is, is however you store your seeds, you know, you've got to be pretty quick with that stuff. It's alive. You know, it's not going to sit around for days and days. It's going to start dying, and you, it won't, you won't get the, the benefit of it. It's rhizobia. It's, it's a bacterial rhizobium, rhizobia. Um, so the bacteria takes gaseous nitrogen from the air and trapped in, in air trapped in the soil and converts or fixes this nitrogen into a form that is that the plant can use. In exchange, the plant provides carbohydrates to the rhizobia bacteria. Legumes contain nitrogen in both both their top growth and in their roots. So then you get the nodules. So I use a product called well, it's a peanut flour for nitrogen. So I went and found organic peanut flour. Um, organic peanut flour would be used like if you buy a power bar, let's say, and you want, you know, they're trying to push the protein levels up. They'll put that peanut flour in there to push the protein level in the power bar up, right? High protein energy. And so they're using like a peanut flour to do that because it tastes good, right? But you can take that protein content and do a conversion, and protein is actually nitrogen. When it breaks down, it's nitrogen. And so it's a, it's a nitrogen. And so that's what I use for nitrogen. In the plant tissue, you're also getting the nitrogen because it's protein building. You're building proteins in the fibrous material of the leaves and in the stem, right? It's proteins that are being built, that they build all that stuff with. And so you don't just get it from the, the nodules on your plants, but you're actually getting it in the plant fibers itself. That's why you can use like a grass as a catch crop. Even though it doesn't have nodules, it's not, a, it's not one of the, the crops that will produce nodules with the, with the bacteria. You still get nitrogen fixation in the plant material itself. So you can keep that in mind as well. Um, so legumes contain nitrogen in both their top growth and their roots. A high percentage of the biologic, a biologically fixed nitrogen is in the top growth. So it is important to manage them to let them grow long enough to produce their full high potential amount of biomass. So you want them to be as big as they can get without going to, to see, right? Because you don't want them necessarily to be perpetuated. <laughs> 
um, um, the residues of these crops can contribute substantial nitrogen. So, for instance, you can get 75 to 150 units of nitrogen in a cover crop. And just to give you an idea, when you get a soil analysis, they will give you an ENR in your soil analysis, if it's a good soil analysis. That's estimated nitrogen release. That is based on your organic matter that you have in the soil and how fast organic matter breaks down and releases nitrogen. So when you put a cover crop in the ground, it's the same principle. As that cover crop breaks down, it's releasing that nitrogen that's in it. Follow? Okay. And so you can get up to 150 pounds, 150 units, they called it. I presume the unit is a pound. Um, which there are some pretty heavy feeding crops. What's a heavy nitrogen feeding crop? Anybody know? Corn is, yeah. Cucumbers is what I always look at. Cucumbers is a big one. Tomatoes are pretty big ones as well. The vining crops are big nitrogen fixers. They take like 150 pounds a year. But you don't want 150 pounds at the beginning of the year, right? You want the 150 pounds through the whole year because it's going to grow all year long, not just in the first three months or first month. You know, and so you want that nitrogen to be a slow-release nitrogen. You want all 150 pounds of it, but you want it to stretch out over the year. This is a really good way to do that, right? This is a very effective way to accomplish that 150 pounds of nitrogen without having to use any off-the-farm resource. Plus, you have your ENR, which is what's happening in the soil already. So, you know, you can be up and around, you know, with a slow release, 200 pounds of nitrogen in your soil, which would be wonderful. Crimson clover, it gets pretty big. I mean, you know, it depends on if you're talking about the one-off that sticks way up, but average. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd have to be there and see the situation to really make a personal decision about what I would do. How big, are you, what, how big of an area are you talking about? Well, the farming area that we're using is probably about four acres. Four about acres. That's a lot of ground to, to, to do that experiment. I would pick a small part and work out what's going to work. When I say a small area, I'd probably do like a 20 by 20 little section and sample things and try different things and then come to a conclusion of what worked best for me and then implement it on a little bigger scale and, and grow gradually into it. Because if you, if you were to go and try that on even three acres, that could be a nightmare if it didn't work. Can I, can I, can I just, yeah, first of all, you're overtilling, and secondly, your compaction zone is right next to your root zone. And so I would, I would not recommend that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're compacting right in the root zone if you're driving up next to your plants. And so the, the most effective tool for you is, is a walk, is a, is a hula, um, no, no, uh, um, No, 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 no. I, um, I keep wanting to say, yeah, yeah, I, um, will hoe. You need a 12-inch will hoe. You can knock those things out quick. No time. You'd be done. You got that much walk path? That's too much walk path, in my opinion, too. You're wasting a lot of space. You need to pack in more plants and let less sunlight get in there and manage it early on when they're smaller and get a dust mulch going. And if you want to come in later in the season, I would undersow it with some sort of um, undersowed crop. When they're taller, 
and then you could you could mitigate later weeds. But I mean, you would be walking on those weeds, basically clover, some sort of a so a white clover or something, but not that. Yeah, you just you just walk that. Yeah. Oh no, no, everywhere. Two foot, yeah, yeah, every two foot. Yeah, get rid of the tractor. <laughs> Till your beds, make your seed beds, go in. How wide's your bed system? Like how how wide's the tractor tires? On center. Five foot? Yeah. Four foot bed top? Yeah. Yeah, so you have two rows, one down each side. You come in with a with your um wheel hoe and you can clean those walk paths up, no problem. One and a half foot, one foot walk paths. What size if you're doing that specifically, I'd, they, you know, they sell a 12-inch. So you're making a, a one-foot pass every time you go down, and it's quick work. Um, it's 5 o'clock, and we didn't get as far as I kind of thought we would. Um, no, it's not all the same, and I don't know the answer to that. I should know the answer to that. I don't know what would be a stronger. I know it's interesting. We grew sweet potatoes, and, and sweet potatoes grow really good in poor soil, because they have a very strong acid they exude and they will break down nutrients that other plants can't break down and get that nutrients out of the soil. And so I know that plants have, they, they do have different exudates that they'll push out to do that. And I don't know which ones would be best for that. The other question, any experience with sun hemp? No, I've never grown hemp in any form. Well, sun hemp is not really Well, okay, in any form, even that, yeah. Because it's supposed to really, it's a summer cover crop, Real big? That, that tall, and it's uh -huh. supposed to fix loads of nitrogen. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. You know, like I said, there's a lot going on in agriculture. That's huge. That's taller than him, huh? Goes fast. Yeah. Summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know Sudan grass is supposed to be a really effective crop as well. Sorghum, Sorghum Sudan grass, yeah. No, it would. Well, it's going to fix nitrogen in the plant fibers, but not not like you're going to get from a uh, from a legume family. Yeah, you had a question. Um, I would, you know, if if you have the option, if you have the finances and the means, um, opening up the ground now and putting down any any of the nitrogen fixation that will go winter over um, vetch probably would be my first choice with something like um, one of the brassicas or a radish. Um, I would probably do like a daikon radish or something like that um, just to break it up. To, and that will till it actually, so-called till it. There's so We think of tilling happening with metal, but you can actually till quite well with cover crops. These taprooting cover crops will go deep and leave. I mean, you can get daikon radishes eight feet long into the ground, this big around, they will make a hole in the ground that is a huge water reserve and oxygen. And I mean, they'll close up, of it. you know, you can till them in, but they will bring all that mineralization from down there up into that plant as well. And you get a lot of use out of that as well. And that would be a good place to start. Before I did any of that, we need to close here. It's 5.08. But before I did any of that, I would get a soil test. I wouldn't trust it with my life. <laughs> um, yeah, I would send it to a, um, a private lab. I would send it to Kinsey. Uh, um, that would be my first choice. Um, 
they're the only people that are using uh, William Albrecht's original numbers and soil testing model. And so it's about the safest place to go at this time that I know of. Um, there's a few other labs that are maybe comparable, some of the places that, that he worked with, that, that Albrecht worked with. But um, I know that, that uh, they're using the right lab technique. I mean, I look for organic cover crop seed because that's me, but that's expensive. Sometimes it's, it's really expensive. And so, you know, if, if you had to get a seed, I would, it depends on the seed that you're choosing to. Like if it's peas and it's an Austrian field pea and it's a basic oat, let's say you do an oat pea mix with a hairy vetch, those are pretty common. So you could potentially get a non-organic blend of that for a uh, building mix. And I think that you're pretty safe. You know, I think you're pretty safe not getting it organic even. I mean, you're not going to eat it. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to eat it. You're going to till it in. I mean, and they're not GMO'd, and they're not too many issues that you're going to run into with that. And so I wouldn't, wouldn't fret over it too much. But if I had the option and the choice, I would go with an organic seed, and I would probably, there's a place called Byron Seeds on the East Coast, yeah, and they have fair prices. I can get it through the Amish, <laughs> um, and the Amish generally buy large quantities and give me a better price than anywhere else. So I would, I would look into Amish communities around you, Mennonite communities around you, um, and talk to them about where they're getting their seed, because they usually go in as a community. And, and can get better prices. Um, but if you're going to like the same high mowing or you're going to Johnny's or Fedco and these places, they're, they're ridiculous. I mean, ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. So those, that's, I would, the, what I do, I get it from the Amish right now. And it's fair. It's expensive, but it's fair. Let's uh, kneel in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you've given us ways to to manage our ground, to manage uh, future crop production with cover crops, with your with seeds and, and grass and, and legumes and just different products that can do a tremendous amount of work for us, Father, that can reclaim lost minerals, that can save minerals from being lost, that we can come together and share this information, Lord. I pray that this would be a blessing to people who are interested in that type of a thing and that uh, it would be useful information to them. Father, I pray as we go our separate ways that you would be with each one of us. Bless us and keep us that we might be able to labor to your ends, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.